Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network and on the 440 Sports YouTube page. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine's Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or Instagram, Aaron underscore Dugan. Make sure you're going to the YouTube page and pushing all the buttons. Subscribe, like, push, push a bunch of likes, the little thumb, you know, push that guy, share the product, share the links, mm-hmm. tell everybody about it. It's sweeping the nation. Many people are talking about it. So make um, sure you do all that. Braden, you're super, super late today. I'm super late today. Um, not, not a thing that's ever happened, um, ever in the history of my life. Mm. And, um, that's because we yep. have a fantastic show. I mean, all the shows are great. Even the show where you got to talk to your idol and hero, Sam Pittman, check yeah. that show out. You're trying to remind me of this so that I'm less mad about us <laughs> being an hour late, <laughs> but today is truly awesome. So th- there's obviously nothing happening in college football. So I thought we would take since divisions are going away. And we haven't talked a lot about like actual football on the field. We're going to do that almost exclusively today. And we are going to relive the 1992 season. It was the first year that we had divisions in any major college football conference. The first championship game of any kind, Alabama and Florida, very memorable. So we're going to kind of take people through an oral journey and oral history of the 1992 season. And it will finish with a, sh- with, with a conversation that you will not get anywhere else about the 1992 season. Heisman Trophy winner Gino Toretta is going to explain what it was like to prepare and play against Alabama in the national championship game at the end of the 92 season. I made him relive some bad memories, Aaron, and he had a great time. It makes it <laughs> that makes it better that you're late for sure. Kyle Tucker. There's, there's more. Wait, there's more. Kyle Tucker of the Athletic, a long state of the union on the University of Kentucky, my Kentucky Wildcats how this program has been built over the last 10 years under Mark Stoops, the strategies that they have deployed. Will a Will Levis, Joe Baroque, a, a, a comparison that you're going to want to hear. Um, so, so much great stuff on the show today. Oral history of 1992, Gino Toretta, Kyle Tucker, Kentucky State of the Union. And oh, by the way, I get to tell Aaron that my Tennessee volunteers have moved on to the Super Regionals and the Vanderbilt Commodores have not. I saw. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you. I did happen to catch that. Um, I want to say congrats, but no, it's I guess okay. congr- no congrats. You can, you, can you guys could the- have been slightly classier on the way, but it's all right. We, we will discuss. We will discuss the uh, classy nature with with Jordan Beck uh, acted rounding first base uh, and the uh, regional win over the weekend. Before we do that, of course, Fringe Element is brought to you by Aaron Dugan. Jasper's, the classiest restaurant on West End Avenue. That is, that's a fact. It's not an opinion. Mm-hmm. That is a fact. Um, although it's attached to Amerigo, which is also on West End, also owned by Four Top Hospitality and also very classy. So tied for classiest two restaurants on West End. How about that? Yeah, that's fair. Fair. And if you'd like to visit all the other wonderful and amazing Four Top Hospitality locations across the beautiful Southeast, make sure you check out Four Top Hospitality. They got locations in Memphis, Jackson, Mississippi, I believe Flowood, Mississippi even. Huntsville, wow. Birmingham, they got locations, 13 of them all across the Southeast, Etch, et cetera, Char, Saltine, Jaspers, Amerigo, you name it. They are covering the Southeast with fantastic food, great menus. Uh, it's a great place to go. So make sure you check out Jaspers and Four Top Hospitality. So freaking starving right now. Real quickly, we'll get into the oral history of 92 and then Kyle Tucker and Gino Toretta, which is a freaking amazing show, guys. You're ignoring me. Don't think I don't notice. Keep going. I'm trying to get us through the baseball stuff here, okay? Because I'm I'm a little, I'm not proud of this, 
but I'm kind of proud of this, <laughs> if, that, if that makes any sense. So Tennessee, we've discussed this before, that Tennessee baseball is sort of, sort of like a bunch of drunken rednecks that are kicked in the door at a, at a fancy party and they've never been there before. And that's sort of what they do, and it's how they play the game. I think it's actually very good for the sport that there is a villain, and Tennessee is very clearly the villain here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a line to where that villainous behavior should should stop and should end. I, I don't want to see Tennessee players getting in a fight with like Auburn coaches. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that would be good. So I think there's Why? a line. <laughs> I mean, it's not great. Um, you know, it's not great for the kiddos to see, you know, um, but you and I have a very, we both, we both have a very deep love of college baseball. The sec is by far the most dominant in, in all of college baseball by even more than like the football league is. And it's, it's fun to watch Tennessee. It's fun to be an alumni of Tennessee and watch them play because I love college baseball and, and I like the way they play the bat flips. I think it's going to grow the sport, Aaron. I think you need to show personality to grow the sport of college baseball. There will always be a divide between certain teams, though, because no matter if that becomes trendy to like act like that or not, <laughs> there will always be teams that don't act like that. Well, you, you, which one do you hate the most? Mississippi State, right? I really, really fan? playing at Texas A&M was real tough, but Mississippi State is um, has kept me from going to Omaha when my bags were completely packed for the entire month. <laughs> and kept us from going on a walk-off homer, the third game of Super Regional. So, yeah, it doesn't taste good. For doesn't How feel big good. a bag are we talking about? Like A bat bag full. Like a huge bag? Like a bat, like a bat bag, like wow. what the guys travel with their bats in. We put our clothes in. And you had to come back and unpack all of that because Vandy had lost to Mississippi State. Mississippi State's got a little bit of that, like, sort of, like, you know, kind of bravado or whatever. We actually um, didn't go to work. The ne- I didn't unpack it the next day. We didn't go to work. We all went to the pool and drank. Good. Yeah. Who was on the team that drank the most? <laughs> oh, not I didn't drink with the team. I oh, drank just, with the employees. Oh, okay. Not not Instagram influencers and not Vandy baseball players, but with other Chili. Va- other Vandy people. Oh, Chili. Okay. Yeah. Shout Our out friend to Chili. Chili. Uh, who uh, is act- like an actual influencer. Um, okay. Yeah. So you've been heartbroken before. Mississippi State's got some bravado, but not like Tennessee. Nothing like Tennessee. So I do have a question for you because as a father of a daughter who played softball for the first time this year. She's five years old and she played in coach pitch. And I somehow ended up being the coach and she like, the only reason I bring that up is because I love the way Tennessee plays the game. I think it's great, but Jordan Beck, if you don't know, he hits a, a, a double over the head of the center fielder to basically tie the game in the top of the ninth of a game that they eventually win to go clinch and the regional move on to the super regional. He rounds first base and starts throwing birds at the other player it, like while he's going to get the baseball, like in the middle of the play, he is flicking up. If this happened in an NFL game, that player is fined or kicked out of the game or there's a penalty or something. And while I love the way they're doing this and I love the way I know they're the villain and everybody hates them. I love the way they're doing it. I, I do think if that was my daughter rounding first base, throwing a bird at an outfielder for missing a play. Also, by the way, Jordan Beck, very punchable face. Very punchable face. I just want to, my wife agrees. We've talked about it. Like, I don't disagree with that. He's, he just has a very punchable face and he throws the bird. I'm like, if my daughter did that, I, I think we would have some words after the game and be like, listen, uh, sweetheart, um, that's not how we do things. So I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to sound like the old man, like yelling at clouds. 
because I like all the Tennessee stuff, but that one to me is a, that's a bridge too far in my opinion. Well, here's the thing. It's not my, it's not my college baseball team. So like act however you want to, (laughs) I do think it's entertaining. Um, but here's the thing is that when you act like that, as soon as you mess up and make an error, you strike out, people are so ready to be right up on your ass for it. That it's, I mean, it comes with a cost. Because if you act like that, as soon as anything goes wrong, people are going to absolutely annihilate you. And we're going to talk with Gino Toretto later. He played on those Miami teams like in the 80s when they were the same way, like that brash bravado, like come get us kind of deal. Like you better back it up. You, yeah. you, better, you better back it up. And, I, and Miami certainly did in the 80s. They had a bunch of first round pl- picks and NFL draft picks. I do think that's what Tennessee has. Like they are loaded. It's just all a bunch of. They are loaded, picks. but the thing is, is we've talked about this a lot, and maybe it serves them well in this. Their energy, it, it they keep ascending through the rest of the College World Series. But you think nerves are high at regionals or super regionals? Wait till you're playing in TD Ameritrade in Omaha. It's a totally different ball game. So I'm just interested to see if their energy and the way that they play is. Their ability to, as we always say, get back to the middle is not really there. Yeah. So we'll see if it lasts them for the entire tournament. Well, it cost them last year. And I actually think that's a huge benefit to Tennessee this year. Go listen, by the way, go to the YouTube page, click all the buttons, turn on the notifications, like all that good stuff, share. But there's a great interview with Mike Rooney of ESPN up there on the up on, up on the YouTube page, which is uh, loaded with insight into college baseball and the College World Series and the growth of the game. But also he talks about how much Tennessee learned from going to and Q last year in Omaha. And I do think mm-hmm. that's a huge advantage to what you're talking about. Their eyes got real big last year in Omaha and that, and Omaha does that to people. And I think that helps them this year. I think the fact that they went out there and got smoked and like pissed down their leg, I think is going to help them. I, I would be, I would be shocked if they're not playing in the college world series final, honestly. Really? So, and, yeah, there's and a lot of me. games. There's a lot of games between now and then. Well, but... ain't no, ain't no, no chance. Notre Dame's going to win two out of three in Lindsay Nelson stadium this week. Probably but, not, but once you get to Omaha, different story altogether. Okay. Just thought we'd uh, take some shots at Jordan Beck while also celebrating Tennessee baseball. <laughs> so, uh, can we not day. throw birds? Can you imagine like Bryce Young throwing a touchdown and then turning to Kirby Smart and just being like, F you, dude, and like throwing a middle finger? Like that would be that would be the biggest thing that's ever happened to the internet. Just th- some of the yeah, it would be. And just think you know what about, I mean? Like I just think about some of the most long-lasting successful athletes. And they're not flipping birds on the way around first. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So what we're saying is be, I, I don't want to say Tebow. Give me another Grow one. Grow up. <laughs> give, me, give me somebody better than Tebow. That's like the mature, like vision of what you think. Steph Curry. Think it's like, it's not Jay Cutler. It's not, you know. Well, I'm in any, I was thinking different. Give me SEC players. football player. Like, um. That's definition of like getting back to the middle, like chill. Yeah. Like the guy that does it the right way. The classy, you know, like. Cause like even even like like Tua maybe Tua might be that guy. He's pretty. Tua, that's a good level. one. So like, be more like Tua, less like Marshall Henderson. <laughs> right. Don't say that name on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No, he's good. He's, he's funny. <laughs> uh, he's something. All right. Uh, okay, 1992, and this this conversation we're going to take you through 1992. We're going to end with a, a quick like eight or nine minutes with Gino Toretta trying to relive the national championship game in which Alabama upset Miami. Miami, by the way. I, I believe came in with every single first place vote going into that, that championship game. And they were upset by Alabama. He's going to tell us all about like the preparation and the study, but I wanted to do this, Aaron, because in part divisions are going to go away. We've talked a lot about scheduling. 
But I think there's probably a lot of younger people. Like you were, I don't know, three years old in 92. How old were you in 92? Two and a half. Yeah, three. Two and a half. Uh, I was like nine in 92. And so I think there's a lot of people that don't sort of remember all of the details and like the craziness that it went into the invention of a championship game Mm -hmm. and the invention of divisions, which now we hold up as like this big thing with, you know, it's tradition and the SEC West and the East. And I think people are coming around on the fact that they're, they were just fabricated out of thin air by Roy Kramer in his infinite wisdom to make a fortune. And the first SEC title game, I think made it made as much, if not more than every bowl game that they had on their slate. So like, it clearly was the right move at the time. Right. I, I just, I want to go through the year a little bit and kind of relive some of the details because it's truly a fascinating year of football. Like it really, really was when I, when I got going on this, Aaron, I was like into a rabbit hole drinking whiskey at like midnight. (laughs) No, I know. I was up later than I wanted to be as well. And I will just go ahead and say this now as we're going through it. I have a fascination with old media guides. Like they're like my favorite thing in the world. Um, so I use the night actual 1992 media guides and we'll show if you're watching on YouTube, Sean Dugan, if you could just put some of these screenshots in from the media guides, but I actually actually printed them out and used these as my references. Oh my I was God. studying the 1992 season. Oh my God. Um, that's insane. And when we get to, fl- I have a couple of fun facts about Florida, go ahead and start and then I'll start throwing stuff. In. Well, I think what's, what's most important to know is sort of how it came about, which we've discussed many times. I think most people know the story that Roy Kramer saw this division three conference in like Virginia and Pennsylvania And there was this little known rule that if you had at least 12 teams in two divisions, you could host a championship game that was never used by the biggest level level of college football. And Roy Kramer was like, sure, let's do it. And he'd already gotten Arkansas to agree to come into the SEC. He had it like Arkansas in his back pocket and he, and nobody knew about that. And then he was like, well, we need one more team. He eventually gets South Carolina to vote to join the league. The league accepts South Carolina. Then he announces they're both coming in. And then in 1992, we're going to split and we're going to have a game. And the long story short of the championship game, as, a, as we've said on the show before, is that Alabama was undefeated. They started, they, pre, they were preseason number nine. Florida was preseason number four. And Alabama wasn't necessarily supposed to be the undefeated champion challenging Miami. Again, back in the really big heydays of Miami. And had Alabama lost to an eight and three Florida, Mm-hmm. in the SEC championship game, they would have been removed from the Sugar Bowl and the national title. So it's one of those where like, if one thing goes the other direction, all of history could be different, or at least who, it would have taken longer. Right. Well, who, but go. who knows? Because there wasn't any other championship games anywhere else in college football. Yeah. It wasn't until a couple of years later when the Big 12 does it and the WAC does it. And that stuff doesn't, like, if Alabama's knocked out of the title game, and again, the, the famous play is Antonio Langham intercepting Shane Matthews when the game's tied 21-21 with three minutes to go and he intercepts him. There's like a whole 30 for 30 about it. But if that game doesn't go Alabama's way, I'm with you. I think you could see a totally different landscape in college football. I think that's that's sort of like the the top level of that entire calendar year. Yeah. And the only thing that really even got close to coming, uh, I mean, to even touching Alabama before you got to that championship game was Mississippi State, who was definitely more of a standout team in the league at that time. Um, and fun fact, this is just funny because all of this is, you know, this is not too long after things with ESPN are really picking up. Yeah. Um, so after the game, uh, Jackie Sherrill, so uh, Mississippi State ended up losing to Alabama by nine. It was 30-21, or sorry, yeah, 30-21 Mississippi State. And um, it actually was a, a pretty exciting game in the large scheme of things. Alabama had only been down like – 
had not been down in the second half at all um, until this game, their whole season. Um, and then, you know, ended up winning by Mississippi State gave them a run for their money, but they ended up winning by nine. However, Jackie Sherrill, Mississippi State's head coach after the game, his quote was, I would say ESPN got their money's worth. That was what he said to the media <laughs> after the game, which is just funny. And then Gene Stallings, coaching Alabama at the time, said, I hate to ask this, but what was the score again? Which is just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> just hilarious, all these things that you find in these media guides. So I just thought I'd try to add some fun quotes as we go through. I um, had a I had a chance to work with Gene Stallings during um uh, a 2014. Yeah, we did. You were there probably, and I had a chance to work with him. And it was it was quite an honor to be around with him. But like, I can't imagine like 1992 Twitter with like Gene Stallings being like, "Yeah, what was the score again?" and just seeing like Twitter just be like the, the disrespect, you know, like oh, you know, just go people going nuts. Um, and it, I don't know what the context was actually. I don't know if he was really like, "Wait, what was the score?" or if he was being snarky. But I'd like to believe it was the second one. <laughs> I'd like to give him credit. It's it's fascinating that Alabama's big wins that regular season, number 13, Tennessee, and number mm -hmm. 16, Mississippi State. Yes, that's right. Uh, Mississippi State and Tennessee were their marquee victories on their schedule that year. Um, all, Georgia was also a ranked team, very, very highly rated. They didn't play them, but they, of course, beat Florida in the SEC championship game. But but you're right. They This is what's so weird. Like This whole season was so weird to me because of how different it looks than today. Like. Alabama played four games in Birmingham that year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> four separate I know, games. Isn't that wild? They played Southern Miss, Louisiana Tech, uh, and the Iron Bowl was played at Legion Field. For those that don't know, if you're under the age of 30, you probably don't know that. Uh, and then, of course, the SEC Championship game was not in Atlanta. It was also in Birmingham at Legion so Field. Weird. So, like, again, for those of you who have been around the game for 50 years, you know most of this stuff. But it's just the coaching changes alone. Arkansas and South Carolina's first trip through the SEC, there was just so much weirdness about this year. LSU and Auburn had a combined three SEC wins that year. <laughs> LSU won one game in the SEC in 1992. They went one and seven. What? It Wild. was the worst. It was the worst regular season in LSU history. And so when you look at Mississippi State, beating Mississippi State, like you said, 30 to 21, they beat Tennessee on the road. They beat Arkansas on the road in week three, which I believe that was in Little Rock, um, which, again, if we talk, we've talked about this with Trey Biddy, of course, on the show. Like there's Arkansas has this whole history with Little Rock and Northwest Arkansas and all this yep. stuff. Um, I, I just found their path to the championship game interesting. And Florida's path to the championship game was equally as interesting. They, they start the season one and two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pre preseason number four, they they lose to Tennessee and Mississippi State by a combined sixty one to twenty. They start yeah. the year one and two, and then they roll off seven straight wins. They beat Georgia by two points. They get destroyed by Florida State, a very good Florida State team. I think Charlie Wood was the quarterback on that team, and then they end up in in I, I, I want to say Atlanta, but no, they end up in Birmingham <laughs> for the SEC championship game and give Bama a great game by the way with Spurrier and Shane Matthews and the whole bunch. Great game. And actually, um, the what's interesting is I'm reading about in their media guide, they call it Florida's fun and gun offense. That's what they were calling it then. But um, they ran, the Gators ran almost the exact same number of passing and running plays that year, only different by like seven. So complete 50-50 split, which is just interesting. And then they well, also... Well, because hang on, sit, sit there for a second. Because okay. at the time, we thought Spurrier was like literally the fun and gun was his thing. 
we, this was like almost the air raid before the air raid. Like, like the idea that, that you could throw yes. the ball 50% of the time. Now, like being done. Yeah. Now you, now you throw the ball 60% of the time, 70% of the time. My, Mississippi state's now throwing it 80% of the time. And like, that's not, that is not how, if I understand correctly, again, I was two and a half, but I'm doing my, you know, backwards <laughs> research, but Alabama was still not playing like that. They were seemed to be playing on the ground more and yes. Florida. So that's what made that matchup a little bit more interesting is that Florida was playing what now we wouldn't call it an air raid offense now, but for the time it was more so of that. And actually if this episode is airing on, well, so tomorrow, whatever day, <laughs> June 9th, June 9th, 1992. So 30 years ago, tomorrow, um, Florida field was named the swamp. That's, that's a good nugget. Wait, so the name, the name of the swamp comes around this 30 week, 30 years, years ago, ago, tomorrow, June 9th, 1992. It was actually, um, uh, Brian, is it Marici, the journalist? I can't remember. That I'll sounds, find it. Sure. <laughs> um, he called it that. And then in their media guide, Florida actually printed entering the swamp. And then they said, AKA Florida field. They were trying to teach the media to call it the swamp. So they put that in their media guide to try to make it happen, which is so interesting to me. And you'll notice on a lot of their schedules, you're starting to see them write rivalry next to certain games. It's ah. like they're trying to make it a thing. Even on the Tennessee Alabama game, they started labeling it third weekend in October like, it's just yeah. interesting what they're trying to make catch on. Yeah, to your point about Alabama, uh, Jay Barker, obviously, th this is pretty famous here. Barker, the starting quarterback, had 1,600 yards passing and seven touchdowns. Woo! <laughs> he had nine interceptions. That was your national championship quarterback, folks, in, the in 92. Again, if you're over a certain age, you know all this. This is about reliving it if you're older and mostly educating a younger audience to just how batshit crazy the SEC was in 1992. And the game wow. itself, college football. Um, and it's not just like, so some of the statistics with Florida. So Shane Matthews throws for 3,200 yards that season, 3,205. Mm -hmm. That was number one in the SEC. Um, there were only seven quarterbacks that threw for over 3,000 yards in 1992. There were 34 quarterbacks that threw for over 3,000 yards last year in college football. <laughs> like, that number, Eric, Eric Zaire, Eric Zaire, by the way, Zaire, Zaire, Eric Zaire, by the way, I can't believe I said that wrong, um, was number two in the SEC and he threw for 2,200 yards. That's one that, month for Joe Burrow. Yeah. Or just, yeah, compare, I mean, you could compare him to a lot of people and it would be minuscule. Uh, Gino Toretto won the Heisman Trophy, look, coming up later on the show. Uh, 3,000 yards passing, 3,060, 19 touchdowns, seven interceptions. That was your Heisman Trophy winner. 19 touchdowns. It's just insane. I mean, what is, yeah. I mean, how many, what was uh, Joe Burrow's record in one game or Bryce oh, Young? Uh, I, I want to say Joe Burrow threw for like six and some change, like six and a quarter, six and a half, six fifty, somewhere like yeah. that. Yep. Um, yeah. That's like in a game. Uh, Garrison Hurst for Georgia, of course, won the Doak Walker award that year. Um, averaged almost seven yards per carry that game. Here, here's one that stands out too, but going back to the passing numbers, Willie Jackson caught 62 passes, led the SEC. Andre Hastings led the SEC with 860 yards. <laughs> Last year, Aaron, 
Uh, Makai Polk caught 105 passes. Wandale Robinson caught 104 passes. And John Mechie caught 96 passes last Jeez. year. Last year. <laughs> wow. That's three of the best eight pass catching performances in SEC history. All of last in one season. And the leader in 92 had 62 receptions. God, it shows you how much the game has changed. It's freaking wild. It has changed a lot. Um, all right. You want to talk about coaches here for a second? Yeah, we can. Because the coaches are fascinating to me. Like, not just Gene Stallings and Steve Spurrier, which is great, right? Mm-hmm. But, so Arkansas and South Carolina, the, the two of them make their debut in the SEC. And Arkansas, Jack Crow is starting his third year as the head coach, he went three and eight and six and six, the two years before they lose to Citadel in week one, Citadel in yep. week one, 10 to three, he is fired. So the very first game that Arkansas plays as a member of the sec, they fire their coach. <laughs> they then go to South Carolina and play their first ever sec game, which is also South Carolina. Actually, it's not South Carolina's first sec game. And they win 45 to seven at South Carolina. South Carolina starts 0-5 that season, including the first ever SEC loss to Georgia at home. Okay, Georgia was pretty good that year. This was Sparky Woods uh, was the quarterback. They start 0-5. They put in the famous Steve Tannehill, who then goes 5-1 down the stretch for South Carolina. Like, just can't make this stuff up. It really is crazy. The more we dug into it, the more you... Doug? Yeah, Doug. Yeah, yeah Doug. Um, the crazier it got. They, Arkansas also lost Memphis State. Let's not forget that one. They lost, how about this? They lost to Citadel, Memphis, and SMU. Yep. <laughs> now, SMU was kind of good back then. Or no, that would have been after the Pony Excess. No, that's so, after, yeah. Yeah, they were terrible. Um, here's what's fascinating about Tennessee also, because the, the Fulmer thing happened in 92. Mm-hmm. Johnny Majors has heart, a quadruple bypass surgery in August. Oh, ho-hum, no big deal. Fulmer comes, is, is the head coach. And for those that don't know, Fulmer is sort of, you know, he kind of, backstabs his way into the head coaching job. So sort of did the same thing as an AD a little bit later on. Um, they are, they, they go on and they beat, I want to say they beat Florida and Georgia in the first three weeks of the year, both of which are ranked like in the top 10. So they beat Florida and Georgia. Obviously Fulmer is beloved at this, at this point, because he's mm-hmm. doing all this great stuff with majors on the sideline, recovering from the harsh majors comes back. They lose to Arkansas and South Carolina. <laughs> It's freaking what? You like it's it's completely unpredictable. I was trying like, to find that schedule actually because I want to look at it with you. Arkansas and South Carolina were not good in their first year in the SEC, which is understandable. But they they both beat number four Tennessee <laughs> after losing one of which after losing to Citadel. We get mad at coaches when they pull their starting quarterback in the first game. He literally got fired. After losing his first game, which is just brutal. I mean, I was Citadel, but so so Arkansas fires its coach after one game. Mm-hmm. You you have uh, Philip Fulmer basically backstabbing stabbing his way into the head coaching job. That will he now then he goes on to win a national title, of course, and is like the head coach for the next like twenty years till 07. Majors comes back and coaches like eight games, but they lose to Arkansas and South Carolina. Then they say, hey, we want Fulmer to take over. And he's like, screw you guys. I'm not coaching the bowl game. So then Fulmer coaches the bowl game, which they win. And then the rest is history with Fulmer. Uh, oh, it's also Pat dies last season at Auburn because things had sort of started to trend the other direction, which, of course, now we know we know what happened in 93 the following year. <laughs> right. <laughs> where, they go, where they go undefeated. Uh, it's just Jackie Sherrill was in his second year at Mississippi State. You already mentioned him. He goes on to have a great you know career at Mississippi State for a long time. Like, it's just... 
the, the coaching is just as interesting as the statistics, which is just as interesting as the path to the championship game. All, of course, under the microscope of is this championship game a stupid idea or is this championship game a great idea? And with two new teams, like the whole thing was. I knew a lot of it. I didn't know all of it. And I'm glad we I del- delved into it. Delved? Delved into it? Delved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, the right word. The and so and going off of what you're saying about whether or not it was a good idea, um, although Kentucky wasn't really, I mean, it their season wasn't that interesting. They had like four or five wins, I think. Um, and you know, it was not a standout season by any stretch of the imagination. But going through their question and answers with Bill Curry, their head coach from '92, it's actually interesting because some of the same things what you're talking about, and also what we're now talking about with adding more SEC games was was one of the topics that was came up. So let me just read you like two little quick question and answers from Bill Curry in 92. One of them's going off of what you said first. What is one thing, uh, what's one thing the addition of Arkansas and South Carolina does for the Southeastern Conference? He said one of the main things the addition of the, these two teams does for the SEC is it gives us the flexibility to have a championship game because you have to have 12 teams. This allows SEC to be innovators, which they continue to do for the rest yep. of football history we're the first <laughs> league to do this i sincerely believe it will be the biggest college football game of the year with the pos- possible exceptions of one of the four major bowls and then he just goes on to say that in other words um like basically gives teams like kentucky a much better opportunity to get into the hunt so they don't have to have a better record than 11 other teams they just have to be better than the f- or at least as close to good as the five on their side so that's interesting but really quick before we move on that, that is a that is really interesting perspective from the kentucky coach who's like yeah we got a chance now yep and and 30 years later they've never played in atlanta yeah it's taken them about 30 years to even flirt with it and uh, kyle still tucker kyle tucker of the athletic covering the kentucky wildcats and the and the build under mark stoops coming up in just a few minutes this is true and then the other thing just because we've been talking about this on a lot of recent episodes um, he was asked, what are your thoughts about the upcoming 1992 schedule? Because I guess some of this was before the season started. On paper, is the 1992 schedule tougher than the 1991 schedule? He said, yes, it is tougher than last year. We've gone from six Southeastern Conference games to eight in a matter of three years' time. That is obviously a huge increase. The eight SEC games reduce the flexibility a team has in adjusting its schedule. There's almost no room for us to make schedule adjustments to try and help ourselves with our record, which is the exact mm. same conversation we've been having having recently about the continued addition of conference games to SEC schedules. Well, and what's fascinating about the response to that, because he's like complaining about flexible scheduling flexibility was to add another game. So we went to 12 games, like we went to 12 total games and that therefore gave everybody a chance to add that FCS opponent in November or whatever you want to call it. So that um, hadn't happened yet. Yep. That's right. I, what what is your favorite part of all of this? Like Gino Toretta, by the way, is going to cover like the national championship game for Alabama. Um, I, to me, that I don't know if this is my favorite part, but like the fact that Arkansas and South Carolina both beat both beat Tennessee might be my favorite thing. But also Arkansas with an interim head coach in its first year ever as an SEC team beat LSU thirty to six, and LSU won one game that year, as you've already pointed out. That that is, I, I knew LSU was dormant from 1971 to like Nick Saban. Mm-hmm. I I did not know it was that bad sometimes. Like, again, that was the worst season in LSU regular season history at the time. It's crazy. I, it is crazy. I, I Some of mine is just less specific, but just the 
actually looking back and seeing how the game is changing. And it's weird because not only is this a pivotal year as it moves to actually having divisions, but it's also you see traditions forming. I see that, saw that all through my research, like are trying to get things to catch on. You're seeing basically teams try to adjust to, um, you know, beat Alabama. Not that necessarily, I know that, you know, Florida was a like a powerhouse up until this point and Alabama and was giving Alabama more of a run for their money than we've seen in recent years. But um, just the adaptation of the game in the air um, and the fact that Alabama didn't really have to do that as quickly. And just like the times too, like they're talking about just looking through all this stuff. And maybe this is just fascinating to me as a videographer and photographer, but you have to sign up to have a spot in the dark room at these games to develop, <laughs> to develop your photos. <laughs> I was dying. It's like, please, <laughs> limited darkroom facilities are available at Commonwealth Stadium, which, by the way, only costs $12 million to build. Oh, um, my God. Kentucky? $12 million to build a whole stadium? And well, it was up, like state-of-the-art. Up until about 2008, you could tell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But they, I think they were, on the, they were on the front end and then didn't get an yeah, update for yeah. a while. But they wait, had wait, to like, so contact no, someone. So there was no yeah. SIM cards in 1992? <laughs> <laughs> mm -mm, no, they were developing them in the limited space dark room at Commonwealth Stadium. Like oh this shit is fascinating. Were were they telling women how to behave at tailgate parties as well? <laughs> God, I hope they were over that. We got to find that though. There's an old article from some mag. We think it maybe was from the Athlon magazine. Sorry, oh, don't, Athlon. Don't don't quit that slander. No, quit listen. Slander. It was still. It was also in the Vanderbilt Media Guide, but that was hope. I think maybe a little bit earlier. But they were like telling women how to sit at tailgates so you. <laughs> Couldn't see their shit, and you know you get it. <laughs> <laughs> we all see it. I can't even keep googling anymore. I gotta stop the googling. Oh my it's god! It's like what ladies wear to tailgates. So I was like, oh my, please. So this is how the Grove started. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was Athlon Sports. <laughs> I don't know if I can give Athlon that much credit. No, no, no. I love him. I love him, but I don't. I don't, we need to quit the slander. Quit the slander, Aaron Dugan. I'm just saying it's y'all weren't. The, it wasn't the. They weren't the only ones. It was in the Vanderbilt, who's supposed to be politically correct, but misses the mark sometimes. Was, <laughs> was also in their media guide back in the day. So <laughs> what? I didn't learn my lesson from reading that. That's all <laughs> I'll say. That's exactly right, uh, Aaron Dugan. Not a lady, and yep. that was the 1992 football season. <laughs> I acted like this even when I was two and a half. Also, so that a girl. At least I'm consistent. When we come back, Gino Toretta going to explain the national championship game. Gino, man, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time. Not every day you have a Heisman Trophy winner on the show, so we appreciate it. How are you, sir? Anytime. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great, man. So let's go back to preparing for the game that will remain nameless. <laughs> and we'll just... I just want to know what you guys were talking about in the meeting rooms when, when you're talking with your offensive coaching staff and you guys are getting prepared to face the Alabama defense. They had just beaten a, a Spurrier offense. Sort of take people through what you what the conversations were like. Where did you want to attack them? Like what give people a sense of what you guys were talking about at that time? Well, I think you know, you got to remember back then we were probably done by Thanksgiving weekend. So, you know, to the championship game, it was a significant layoff and, and we knew we were playing for the championship. We just didn't know, you know, I was back pre BCS days of where was Miami going to go to a bowl because uh, we had just gone into the big East. So we didn't have like a Rose bowl tie where we had to go to the Rose bowl. We didn't know where, where our bowl game was going to be uh, or who, who we were going to play. And then, uh, 
you know, we obviously watched the Florida game very similar to uh, to our offense from the standpoint of, you know, Spurrier loved throwing the ball. They had, you know, Shane and all his wideouts. And, um, you know, we watched that game. And it was obviously it was, a, it was a great game back and forth. They both made great plays. And then as we, I think as we started preparing for the game, and I, you know, I can remember being in New York for the Heisman and Spurrier was there and, you know, he was like, oh, you guys, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll take care of them. You got the, you know, the same kind of talent we have and that. But then when you start watching film and, you know, Copeland and Curry were both top 10 picks. So everybody knew those guys. Okay. Um, and then their tackle Gregory was out against Florida. So not only do you have those two guys that are top 10, then you had Gregory who was coming back. He was going to be healthy by our game. Then you had Teague Langham and, and Antonio London, who I played with in Detroit. I mean, you know, the, the, their defense was littered with, with talent. And I could see that. We could, we could all see that. And then I think it was, you know, I'm like, wait a sec. We have a 235-pound converted tight end that was going to be my weak side tackle oh, uh, that was got thrown in for the game. Uh, oh. Kip Vickers, who ended up playing – probably seven years in the league, he was a converted D tackle that season. So, I mean, if he had started two or three games, I, you know, I'm somewhere around there. Um, I think Mario Crispo was on the right side, right tackle. Yeah. He was, yeah. he was kind of banged up. You know, our offensive line was, was not, you know, not full strength and not, um, you know, wasn't an, you know, something where we felt comfortable blocking just two guys, let alone three up front. Um, so we knew kind of personnel wise, and we, we just, I think we felt was, if I can get rid of the ball quick, if I can get it in the, in the white in the Kevin Williams, Lamar, uh, Daryl Spencer, our wideouts hands, they'd be able to make enough plays that we would force the defense to not be aggressive. Um, and we knew it wasn't going to be a, uh, you know, we knew it was going to be a huge home field advantage for us. I mean, most of our, our team, my team. We were seniors, so we were redshirt freshmen in 89 when we beat Alabama for the championship in the Sugar Bowl. And we knew it was going to be 99% Alabama SEC fans in that stadium. Right, right. Um, and it was just, you know, it was deafening. I mean, we couldn't, you know, I mean, literally four feet away from you, they had to scream in the huddle of what the play call was. So you had to deal with that. And then, uh, you know, we obviously go out there, we make some mistakes. We were actually moving the ball pretty well early in the game. And then, you know, we make some mistakes. Uh, we've, we turn the ball over, lets their offense basically be out there. And they kind of ran our, our defense down because they were out there so much. They had uh, 300 yards rushing. And that wasn't, that wasn't our defense's fault. That was right. us not being able, able to stay on the field. Um, we, we normally offensively didn't stay on the field very much as it was. But that was normally because we we scored in under three minutes or two minutes. <laughs> but when, when you're not scoring and you're off the field in two yep. minutes, your defense doesn't uh, doesn't hold up that well. And and, and I can, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of joke. I was like, yeah, I counted the ceiling tiles of the Superdome before it was uh, Mercedes Benz or whatever they call it now. <laughs> so it sounds like the things that created problems, you kind of were, were aware that they were going to be the issues you need to address. Like whether it's the crowd or the defensive line or whatever, it's like, it wasn't like you didn't prepare correctly, right? You, you had, no, the, you knew no, it was the, coming. The, it just was, they were, they were just the matchup just, they just yeah, won the matchup. I mean, 
they they were better than us, a lot better than us that day. And I yeah. and I think we were prepared for the noise. I you know I mean hell by that time that was my twenty eighth start. I mean I would you know right, they right. could have lot. We, we used hand signals on the outside. I mean I would fake them, use them real. It, did, it didn't even matter. I'd call the plays. You know, Coach Erickson was sent in a formation. I could call the my, the play that he wanted to run. Um, but you know that also gives an advantage to the defensive front when you got, you know, a guy like Curry, who was probably six, eight, I think great, great length. You know, he's coming off the edge on a 235 pound tackle. Well, I mean, he's out of his stance before, you know, the ball's getting snapped. We're, we're in gun most of the time, if not all of the time, uh, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't run the ball. Um, and there was just kind of one of those things that snowballed, you know what I mean? We yep, moved yep. the ball. I think we had a couple fumbles early in the game. Yep. Um, and then, you know, obviously the play that didn't count where Teague, you know, tracked down Lamar, you know, I mean, that didn't even, the play didn't even count. All I know, I threw one of the best passes I've thrown in my career. <laughs> I mean, like uh, just an absolute seed down the sidelines. Lamar catches it. I'm walking off the field, like looking around, like, man, how long was that? I was thinking like, man, that's 88, 90 yards. That might be a bowl game record or something like that. It'll put us right back in the game. And the, and the stadium erupted. And I was like, yeah, what happened? You know what I mean? Then Teague's running with the ball down there. I'm like, what, how did he get the ball? You know, right. I was just, I, I didn't even, you know, I wasn't even watching. I was walking off the field. So, you know, I think it was just them. They, they executed it. And I've, you know, I remember seeing, God, I think broadcasting the game, Mississippi State, 99. I think that was a snowball in Shreveport. I guarantee you remember that. It was Oklahoma okay. yeah, before yeah. they won the title. Jackie Sherrill was still there. Brother Oliver, Oliver was their D coordinator. And and it, TV goes in do the interview. And he walked in and he goes, man, they put a lot of pressure on you that day. And, and I was just like, and I wasn't even like, you know, I was, right, right, right. I was right. and, and I was just like, I go, yeah, they brought the heat. And he goes, no, he goes, we knew you called the place and we knew if there was blitz, you knew how you, you didn't, you know what I mean? It was like, right, right, right. You know, you watch a game and you're taught as a Miami quarterback, or at least then was you get out of bad place. And it's not like, you know, hey, let's let's still run it. You know, you see like a right, bad right, right. sack and stuff like that. And so he knew that. And I mean, he sh and I remember the first few series. I mean, they would show blitz. I'd change the play out, you know, and they'd come out, you know, and I was like, after the first few series, I'm going to our coaches. I'm like, what are they coming out to? Like, are they coming out to zone, a two zone, a man, uh, you know, man free? What are they doing? So I know what to audible to. And it was like, they were changing that up. And it was like, and he knew that. And that was, mm -hmm. you know, that was him. That was, you know, that was coach Stallings who was yeah. known for blitzing in the NFL that, you know, when you got 50 days to prepare for a game and, you know, let's face it. I mean, when you look back and you're like, wow, but what did they have? They had uh, four or five first round picks on the, on the, on the mm -hmm. defense. I think eight of the guys were drafted in the top three rounds. So yeah. they were a little yeah. bit underestimated. <laughs> Yeah, probably into that game talent. I, I I've never underestimated because I'm like, wait a sec, these guys were just in a title with us in '89. Yeah, they have skill on the outside, and they got three hosses up front. Where I'm like, man, I don't know if we could block one of them, let alone all three at the same time. And that's yeah. kind of was you know recipe yeah. for disaster. You make some mistakes, and it looks bad.
All right, we'll let you go, man. I appreciate you uh, uh, get, taking some time to relive it all. I know, I know, it's probably not relive the easiest. The bad thing. memories, yeah. I appreciate <laughs> no, it's it, not right? the. You not... just ruined the rest of my day. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Uh, so I'll do one more, and then we'll let you go here. Um, when you're walking off the field, the final whistle happens. Like, what's going through your head, and what are the conversations with your teammates? Like, just can you do you have do you have anything that stands out in terms of what you remember about that moment? Yeah, I remember um, when we were, you know, going through my junior and senior year, our break of our huddle was 30 and 0. We would have ended 30 games in a row, consecutive wins. And and that was, and I was just like, you know, and, and you know, we all knew, well, at least the seniors, you know, most of my, most of my teammates were, at least the starters were seniors. And we knew we, were, we wouldn't have a chance to lace them up again. That just, yeah. it just, you know, to, you know, it's, it's great getting to a championship, but, and it's great winning one, I won one, two, uh, but losing that's that it, it, it stings. It hurts, it hurts an awful lot. You just like, you're like, man, what, what, you know, could I have done? And then you, you know, obviously you see the, you know, you see the fans, which are, you know, in that stadium were mostly Alabama fans with buttons on that said, Gino who, and, you know, and I, you know, obviously <laughs> I didn't play well and, and that, but nobody on our offense uh, played well. So it's, it's, uh, it, it sucked. <laughs> I, I believe it, man. And you are a great sport for doing this. We really appreciate it. I wanted to kind of give some people some insight into how that 92 season finished and nobody better than, than you to do it. Uh, obviously appreciate all the work you've been doing since then. And, um, we, we thank you for joining us, man. Uh, we appreciate it and get back to doing all the stuff you're doing, man. We appreciate it. Anytime, thank you. Brad. Anytime. That was Gino Toretta, of course, Heisman trophy winner and, uh, was laying on his back for much of the game against the Alabama Crimson Tide. So I just thought, listen, we strive to give you a better product here on fringe element, YouTube and otherwise all the good, good, good stuff, right? Review, subscribe. Um, <clears throat> brought to you by Jaspers and for top hospitality. And I don't think there's any other podcast where we're going to talk about a guy throwing the middle finger at the center fielder. And you're going to hear from Gino Toretta talking about trying to prepare for 1992 Alabama's defense, where he basically just said, yeah, they had a bunch of dudes and we couldn't block them. And I, that was, it was tough. <laughs> and hearing about Gene Stallings asking for the score of his own game. Yes. Yes. So, uh, I thought that was great from Gino. Like he's, he's a great sport about this. I've known him for a long time. He's a great dude. And, I like clearly they did not have the offensive line personnel for that matchup. And after talking to him, it, like, as I said with him, he's basically like, they knew the weaknesses of the matchup and they knew where it was going to go wrong potentially. And they thought they had a plan to, to, to counter that. And they just didn't. Yeah. And then Alabama just ran the football down their throat, won the national title and um, went on probation after that. <laughs> and so. Such is history as like, is tradition. But the 92 season was just so fascinating. So it just, I thought we would have some fun with that and uh, no better way to do it than with Gino Toretta to wrap up that conversation. So I thought that was fun, Aaron. We should do yeah. that again for like another year. Yeah, we should. Y- y'all want to, y'all want to share a year with us? We'll do a deep dive into another year. Let us know what, what year. I like that idea. Yeah. Let the people choose. Tweet at Braden one insult and also what year you want us to, <laughs> to break down in college please, football. Please insult me and then ask me to do some work for you. That I want to start doing a mean tweet segment. I'm good with that. I just don't. I freaking love when people are mean to me. It's so funny. That is so weird, but not it's, surprising. But it makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> no, I, I'm also, my wife doesn't understand it. Like I'm the same way. I'm like, listen, you took time out of your day to log onto an app on your phone to tell me how bad you think my opinion is. Thank you. Oh, I, I love it. I, I appreciate so that. Funny. 
Um, all right. So before Kyle Tucker coming up, another fantastic conversation by him, not by me, by him about Kentucky, the state of the program, how they've built to where they've built. And honestly, the expectations for yet another 10 win season for this team in 2022, but more importantly, like how the program has been constructed before we do that. Of course, fringe element is brought to you by who Aaron Dugan. It's brought to you by Jaspers. It's been on West End since June of 1992. It's been there a long time. It's a lie. <laughs> um, it's 30. It's about to have its 30 year anniversary in just days from now. Untrue. And um, they actually invented the cheeseburger. Most people don't know that. That one's true. That one is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They 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 opened in summer of 2020, which is the actual truth, uh, and invented the cheeseburger in 2020. You can't prove the summer thing, the 2020 <laughs> no, thing. No, it's not, it's not like there's an actual restaurant you can go to <laughs> and see if it was there or not. There's no proof. Uh, Jasper's on West End, the next evolution of the sports bar, catering to all your needs. If you come to Nashville and you're visiting Nashville, you got Jasper's and Amerigo attached right there. They're both from Four Top Hospitality. Great chefs, great restaurants. Amerigo, of course, got other locations across the Southeast. They they are Nashville staples, man. Like when, when West End was nothing, it was Amerigo's been there. So Amer- Amerigo totally. and, and Four Top Hospitality have been serving Nashville for a long time. And now they have 13 locations across the Southeast. They're in Jackson, they're in Huntsville, they're in Memphis, they're all over the place. So check out all the great uh, locations from Four, Four Top Hospitality and tell them we sent you. Say, listen, I was uh, I was watching on the YouTubes and listening to this cool podcast about, you know, 1992. And I was hearing about, you know, how Gene Stallings didn't know the score of his own game and they're uh, going to be just, like, what lies did they tell you about our restaurant and what we're serving? <laughs> right. And I just like swerved into a free parking lot and it, and I didn't have to pay and I'm in the parking lot. Here I am. And you're uh, so hip. You use the term swerve. It, and I didn't, that's probably not the right term. Like, just like you don't know what gyrate means. I do. It's a deep cut, by the way. If you, if you understand that argument, you've been listening for a long time and we love you. Yeah. No, thank you for everything you've done. Honestly, yes, we, we appreciate your support. We do not deserve you. Go to Jasper's check out Four top hospitality. When we come back, our conversation, Kentucky state of the union with Kyle Tucker of the athletic. Kyle, good to see you, man. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. How are you, sir? Good, man. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about the team. We'll, we'll talk about 2022, right? 2022. We'll talk about that here uh, <laughs> coming up in a second. But I would like to to get what I really love to do about Kentucky football is try to paint a picture for what it looked like when Mark Stoops was hired. What are the tangible difference that, you know, Mitch Barnhart and the Kentucky administration, as well as Mark Stoops, like what are the things that they have done over the last 10 years that has allowed Kentucky to find this like new level? Can you even begin to try to describe where they were? When he yeah. was hired. Well, so so my first year covering Kentucky, I covered Virginia Tech for eight years uh, before I came to Kentucky. And it was a primarily football job and then came to Kentucky to cover primar- primarily a basketball uh, program, but but covered football, too. And, you know, coming from Virginia Tech, where they had kind of built from nothing and, and were in the heyday back then. They were all eight years I covered Virginia Tech. They won at least 10 games. They went to four or five BCS bowl games. You know, they were in the mix. Um, and so then I come to Kentucky and, you know, I remember driving up the first day with my wife and pulling up to the stadium, like, oh, this is SEC, you know, they're not great, but they've been to, at that time, they had been to five straight bowl games in 2011 was the year. And, uh, under, um, um, 
Rich Brooks and then one one year of Joker. So they've been to five bowl games. And I think, well, they're pretty good and it's SEC football. Like I can't wait to see the stadium. And I pull up and it was a dump, frankly. Like it was Commonwealth Stadium was a dump. It was really underwhelming. And uh, you know, then the season starts, and I think they went five and seven that first year. And the second year, 2012, they go two and ten. And the last game joke of Joker Phillips tenure, um, the actual attendance was like, like 15,000, you know, in a, in a 70,000 seat stadium, it was bad. And they were not competitive Uh, that summer. uh, I think they had lost like a secret scrimmage, seven on seven scrimmage to Eastern Kentucky. you know, they, they had, they had OVC level talent in the SEC. I mean, they had the famous line when they lost to Western Kentucky or almost lost. I can't remember. They had a run where they almost lost some years and lost a couple of years to Western Kentucky. But in one of those games, the, the famous uh, line, one of the Western Kentucky guys on the sideline got caught by the ESPN camera saying uh, they supposed to be SEC. You know, they, they were, they were down bad. Um, the, the facilities were, 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 horrible you know the practice facility it was this old you know 30 40 year old dumpy old building small you know uh didn't have at the time i don't even think i had a synthetic turf practice field i mean it was um it was bad and the talent level was really bad i mean i remember when stoops got hired you know some of his coaches i'd see them after practice and i go how's it going they're go going to recruit <laughs> basically like these guys suck and we need some better ones um and so they, I mean, to, to paint a picture of how bad it was, I mean, they had the second worst facilities in the league. Vanderbilt will never, probably never get out of that basement, even, even with the, even with the renovations, but certainly, you know, at that point it was them and Vanderbilt. Um, and they were, you know, at that time they were a worse program than Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt was actually enjoying a little bit of success. And so, That's right. yeah. Um, it, it is hard to just to, to really even even with all that to put into context just how bad things were. And so what has happened to, to, to frame up what has happened since then, you know, upon hiring Stoops, you go, you know, the, the thought had always been you had to like hire, like in Kentucky, you couldn't just win traditionally. You had to go hire like a, you know, Mike Leach and uh, Guy Morris and, and all those, you know, the, um, the air raid, you know, you had to, you had to have an air raid, you had to have a gimmick. Um, um, you know, how mommy, I said, guy Morris, how mommy. Um, but they, they kind of basically decided like, we're going to try to actually do this right. Like not try to gimmick our way into wins. So they go and hire this vaunted defensive coordinator who with pedigree coached the greatest defense in history at Miami uh, at Florida state. He had built up that defense, which I think the year after he left, they won the national title. Um, Stoops was responsible for a lot of that. Um, and they start kind of building it like an actual infrastructure, right? Yeah. Like you hire a guy who wants to, to you know, culture is that, that word that gets thrown around, but really truly build a culture uh, who the thing that really impressed everybody about him and sold them on him, even though he hadn't been a head coach is that he had a plan. Like you need a, you need a rock solid, long forward thinking vision and plan to win at a place like Kentucky, to win anywhere, but some places kind of run themselves if you just don't fall all over yourself. A place like Kentucky, like you've got to really know what you're doing. And so he had a plan. And then Kentucky made a commitment, right? They they immediately promised him, you know, I think the same day or week that they 
announced Stoops. It all runs together now. It's been a decade, but they basically in the same moment they're hiring Stoops, they they say we are going to fix the stadium, and so they put 160 some million dollars. Basically, gave the stadium yep. a, a whole facelift, and it's a totally different building now. Um, you know, within a few years of that, they give Stoops a 50 million dollar practice facility that is state of the art. It's as nice as anything in the SEC. Coming soon, they're going. He he had one more demand. He wanted. Uh, and a better indoor facility, and they're going to address that. Um, and so they've brought their facilities up to at big boy SEC football level. Uh, they pay their coaches big boy money. I mean, Stoops has gotten all these raises. He's going to his deal now pays him up to like eight and a half million dollars. He's one of the ten or fifteen highest paid coaches in college football at Kentucky. Uh, they've got three assistants who average over a million dollars a year. Uh, on their uh, contracts, both coordinators and their recruiting coordinator, Vince Merrow, who's been key to this whole thing. He's been with Stoops the whole time, make over a million dollars a year. So like they, they got in the arms race for one. And then they committed to this vision. They stuck with Stoops through some hard times. His first year, they go two and 10 because they had that dog meat talent. <laughs> um, and, but he immediately started upgrading that talent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he treated, there's not enough talent in Kentucky to sustain an SEC program. But they got the best players to stay home, uh, the handful that there were. And then he he did the smartest thing that has happened in the modern Kentucky football era, which was adopt Ohio as local recruiting because it's right there. Cincinnati's an hour away. Cincinnati is Kentucky. It's sitting right there. All, you know, if you visit Cincinnati, all the best breweries are in Kentucky. Like Right. right. A, 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 basically a major metropolitan area in another state is right. really in your state. It's just like right across the water. And then a lot of other places, and, you know, Stoops is rooted in Youngstown, Ohio, and there's a lot of talent from there. Lynn Bowden, he got out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he realized, and, and Vince Merrill's from Youngstown. Like his staff is very Youngstown. I think there's now four guys from Youngstown uh, on the staff. And they just hit Ohio hard. And they realized like Ohio State, one, is recruiting nationally. And two, is only going to take so many, you know, they're only going to talk to very top guys. And that leaves a whole bunch. I mean, Ohio is one of the most talented states in the country. And Kentucky for years, it was like, especially under Joker, it, it was this mentality that like, okay, we can't, we can't go get the best players in the country. We just can't win four and five-star battles. So we're going to go try to get the hidden gems who are the third-tier guys in Georgia and Florida and Alabama. And like, okay, so you're getting the third choice from all the states that house the programs you're trying to beat. How is that going to work? Uh, and so they, you know, they went to Ohio, and that's where they built their talent base up. I mean, you dramatically upgrade your talent when you have, you know, OVC level talent to start with. And then you're getting four stars that were just maybe just not good enough to go to Ohio state, but they could have gone, they, they used to go to Michigan state and Penn state and Iowa and other places uh, and, and help big 10 teams win. Now you are the northernmost sec program selling the sec. And you're basically saying, stay home and play in the sec, stay home and play in the sec. If you weren't going to go to Ohio State, do you want to go to the second tier Big Ten school or do you want to stay home uh, and play in the SEC? And they leveraged all their relationships, long, lifelong relationships in Ohio. I mean, the Stoops and Merrow are the most connected people in the state of Ohio outside of anybody in the Ohio State family. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that that was a stroke of genius. And, and over time, they they 
they got these guys like Benny Snell, the all-time leading rusher, and Lynn Bowden, you know, the most dynamic guy since Randall Cobb that's played there. Um, you know, and then you you hit a couple home runs. You you recruit and develop. They you get a guy like Josh Allen, who was a two-star recruit, and only Fordham was offering him out of New Jersey. They couldn't get Rutgers to give him an offer. And he develops over his career, kind of like Bjorn Warner had done under Stoops at Florida State, a no-name recruit who becomes the national defensive player of the year. That happened for Josh Allen, and he's a top 10 pick. And all of a sudden, now you don't just have to recruit Kentucky and Ohio. Now Kentucky can recruit more nationally. Now Kentucky is going into places like Georgia and Florida and Alabama and getting four-star players. Um, and they've expanded their recruiting footprint. And all the while, you're, you know, these, these blueprint drawings of stuff we're going to build get built. And then you go from two wins Stoops first year to five wins his second and third year to seven wins his fourth uh, his uh, fourth and fifth year. And then you jump up in his sixth year, they have a 10-win season, which they hadn't had in 40 years. And now after last year, they've had two of those in the last four years. Um, and you find Kentucky at this place that, to me, circling back to, like, what were they when he started, it's really unfathomable that they've, they've yeah. made these strides. They are now in a period of – Six straight bowl games. Uh, they've won four in a row, three or four in a row. They've won, you know, two New Year's Day bowl games against Ohio. I mean, against the Big Ten ranked Big Ten opponents, Penn State and Iowa, uh, in the Citrus Bowl. They won a Gator Bowl. Um, that's just not stuff Kentucky ever did. I mean, that ever did. You know, they they've climbed yeah. the pecking order to. I would say they're no worse than the third the number three team in the East now sort of in a, in a, over a window of time, let's say over the last six years, they're the second or third best program in the East. And that that's really never been the case. Yeah. It's, it is remarkable journey that the entire program has been on for this last decade. It, I mean, it's a lesson for everyone outside of like the top 5% of college football it should be a lesson on how to operate a program for almost everybody, like from a strategic standpoint, a tactical standpoint. So I think that's a great picture of where, where they're at. Let's look at the team this year. And obviously Liam Cohen leaves, but they go out and sort of hire another guy similar to him from the Shanahan tree. And so when you bring in Will Levis, all the talk with, with Mark Stoops has been the offense and the evolution. You get a guy that now is getting first round draft pick consideration. The offense didn't evolve a ton last year, but it was certainly much better but Wondell Robinson's gone. So how does Mark Stoops continue the offense and the evolution? How does that in, like snowball keep rolling downhill for them? Yeah. And that was the thing too, when you talk about sort of, you know, evolving and taking the next step, like they built, they built this thing on run the football and play defense. And then until you know, partially by necessity, because they never had a game changing quarterback. And now, you know, one Stoops realized before they even had the game changing quarterback and Levis, and the you know wide open coordinator and Liam Cohen last year he he realized like okay we've become way too predictable I mean they were they were a horrible passing team they just that the passing game went away from their uh, offense and he made a change Eddie Grant had been a successful he'd been part of the you know architecture of building the program and he he let him go uh, who's he's actually now back he joined him joined back up with them last year in kind of an analyst role because they have a great relationship. But Stoops said, hey, we've stagnated. We, we've got to make a change. And so he goes to the NFL, pulls from that tree, the McVay-Shanahan tree, uh, gets this transfer quarterback who 
his new coordinator saw before anyone was a perfect fit for what he wanted to do. Uh, you know, Will Levis couldn't get off the bench. He was, he was the, he was like the change of pace run only quarterback right. at, at Penn state. And he's got this huge rocket arm. Um, and by the end of last season, you could see that he threw for almost 3000 yards. He ran for about 400 yards. He's hurdling people. He's, you know, throwing missiles to Wondell Robinson. He leads the game winning drive, you know, in the bowl game. Um, and even with the, with the coordinator change, when they had to get a new guy, Stoops was very uh, committed to the style and the, you know, continuity of get somebody like that, get, get somebody from that same family of offenses. You go get rich from the 49ers. Who's a quarterback, kind of a quarterback whisperer. You bring him in and he takes one look at Will Levis and says like, this guy is as good. He told me he's as good as any quarterback in the last two drafts, which is crazy to hear somebody say, and, and, you know, I think at least one mock draft had Will Levis maybe going number one, which I don't know that we're going to see that, but I mean, <laughs> almost everybody right now has him in the first round and a right, lot of people right. have him in the top 10. Uh, and I don't think it's crazy. I mean, when you look at his physical tools and also you got to weigh that against what else is out there and there's, you know, is there just like a no doubt quarterback right now uh, at the NFL level? I'm not sure. I think though, going from really not have the last time they had just an absolute game changing quarterback. I mean, you could say Jared Lorenzen, but probably go all the way back to Tim couch when they had a number one there. They're, What's the deal with, you don't love Andre Woodson. Hate <laughs> Wood, on Andre no, Woodson. no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Woodson. Come on now. Okay. We'll, we'll give Woodson. Okay. So Woodson is the, is the closest thing in between couch and now Woodson. Yeah. But you know, did he even get drafted? I'm not sure he even got drafted. No, he was not a fellow player, but he right. did hold a lot of like. Oh, he had set a bunch of SEC records. Yeah, and at one yeah. point, you know, you, they were deep into that season, 2007, where they upset number one LSU. Um, you know, deep into that season, he was like the Heisman front runner. So, I, yeah, I, yeah, I think that is a disservice to Andre Woodson and a good guy. Come on, I'll come on. But it's been a while. I mean, it tells you how, how long <laughs> it's, it was also before my time on the beat, but it, it has yeah. been, you know, 14, 15 years since they even had a guy that was like in the conversation. And, and so now they have that guy again. And I think the difference was like Jared Lorenzen was not surrounded by a ton of talent. Andre Woodson was surrounded by good talent, you know, in the modern era of Kentucky football, pretty good talent. They had a, number, a handful of guys that ended up playing in the NFL, but not near. If you think about compare those rosters that Lorenzen and Woodson played on to what this roster is like, they've built up all around Kentucky had gotten good everywhere. They'd done some of the stuff that people said you couldn't do at Kentucky. I, I mentioned earlier, you got to be gimmicky because you can't recruit SEC offensive and defensive linemen at Kentucky. Well, they have. I mean, they have, they've had one of the best offensive lines in the country. They've had great running backs. They've had star wide receivers. They've had the unanimous national player of the year on defense, defensive player of the year. And so they've built up all the talent around it and they just lacked that quarterback. It's like if you dropped Lorenzen or Woodson into this roster, like you'd think Kentucky could make a run at this thing. And that's what they think they've done, I think, with Will Levis. And Will Levis may be more talented than either of those guys. Um, and so, you know, when I asked Stoops, I said, I ask you every year, like you know, we do the state of the program at the Athletic, and, and every year it's like, okay, you kept climbing or you've maintained. I always say, how do, you, what's the, how do you take that next step? And they're at the point now where they finished twice to George, second – second in the East twice to Georgia in the last four years. They, they've gotten to a game in late October or November 
against Georgia, one at home in 2018, last year on the road in Athens, where if they win that game, they are going to win the East. Well, and, and they played Georgia probably as well as anybody in the yeah, conference. Not really year. close, but closer than anybody right. other than Alabama. Right, uh, exactly. You know, and so, yeah, they've gotten – now they've gotten to this point where it's truly – how do you take the next step means how do you win the East? And, one, that's really hard. I'm not sure you can do it. But if there is a way when you've built up everything else to finally have a potential, like, not just good, but maybe star, really, truly game-changing – dynamic star quarterback uh, is to me the only potential answer. Because like, if you look at what, like, look at Joe Burrow, Um, Joe Burrow, it's kind of a similar type of story. I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying. I totally see. I totally see where you're going here. Couldn't get off the bench at Ohio state. He transfers to LSU. He has like a good solid first year at LSU. And, And by the end of the year, he leads them to a bowl victory you know, I think they won like eight games the year before they go undefeated and everybody's saying that's like the greatest team ever. But the year before that, he was pretty good and they were pretty good. They weren't great. LSU wasn't great. But year two of him with Joe Brady, he gets this, this rock star coordinator. He just takes off like a rocket and they take off like a rocket. I mean, we all know this. This is why quarterbacks are, are all of the conversation. They are, they are the biggest money because they are the difference maker. If you don't, it's the reason that crappy quarterbacks get drafted in the first round because you got to try to find one. If you if you're an NFL team that doesn't have one, it's like give me the best of these crappy quarterbacks because I got to try to hit on one. You have to have a quarterback. Kentucky hasn't had a really good one since you know since Andre Woodson, and and if they have one now, does that how what is that worth? I guess like what what's the wins above replacement for you know if if Will Levis turns out to be a star. Does that put them, you know, do they get to that November game with Georgia again this year, you know, playing for the, for the SEC East? You're a hundred percent right. Like I'm not suggesting that he's going to throw for 5,600 yards this year and they're going to win the national title, but the story parallels are obvious. And I have not heard that before. So you get full credit. Um, Let's wrap up here with the schedule this year. It does kind of set up a little bit. I know they got to play at Florida early, you got to go to Tennessee, you know, Ole Miss on the road, but is Ole Miss as good? I think Mississippi right. State's pretty good this year. I think challenging again for another 10-win season is not out of the question, right? Is that what they're expecting this year? Oh, I think that's absolutely the expectation. Yeah, I mean, which is a crazy thing. Like, we, we've gotten to a point that, you know, I talked to a lot of Kentucky fans, and that's just like last year, that was the expectation. They're going to win 10 or 11 games. And it, it is even, I would say, even more so this year. I mean, we have gotten to a point where there's a lot of the Kentucky football fan base that would be deeply disappointed and angry if they didn't win at least eight games. Like, like winning eight would probably feel like a failure to a lot of people this year. Uh, winning less than eight would be, you know, they would be outraged. And it, I remember, it's funny, every everything, you know, expectation and it it changes over time. If you do something long enough, then like what once was good enough is no longer good enough. Right. But, I, but you know, if we're talking about 10 years ago, yeah, we started this conversation about where was the program when soups took over, people would actually say all the time, like not a small amount of people, almost everybody I talked to who cared about Kentucky football would say, give me someone who can get us back to winning seven games and getting to a bowl game. Like I, if they'll, if he does that every year, we'll build him a statue. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that is no, that is no longer true. Like he, one, he has done that. Right. So seven, seven, 
10, 8. They had the COVID year, but still got to a bowl with a losing record and won it. Uh, and then 10. So they, you know, they've basically been seven plus for six straight years now. And they've, they've been to a bowl game every year They he's in his worst year, he's done that minimum level of expectation, but he's raised the bar because now, I mean, they won eight games in a year where they didn't have a, they literally didn't have a quarterback. Not like, not like they didn't have like a good quarterback. They moved Lynn Bowden to quarterback, snapped him the ball and he ran every play and they won yeah. eight games and they lost two that year. I think that by like three points. So, yeah. you know, they, they could have won 10 games with no quarterback. And, and so Stoops has done some pretty crazy stuff. And so now the bar is, yeah, like, it, it, yeah. It's got to be 10 wins. It is. I, I have sort of long been supportive of Stoops, Kentucky marriage. I think even before they got to 10 wins. So I'd like to think I'm sort of like carrying the torch here for Kentucky <laughs> football, but I, but I, but it's cause I believe in the, the philosophy and how it's like being done. I think it's the, it's the right way to do it. And I know that's sort of a cliche, but I just think it is. And so um, it's a little I, old school. I mean, you know, I, like right, I said, I covered right. Virginia Tech and Frank Beamer used to always say like he was, had a losing season his sixth year. And like in no world now would you survive that year seven? Yeah. He begins a run yeah. of like 27 consecutive bowl games. You know, yeah. it's it's pretty old school to stick with your guy and let him sort of slow build it. And, and that's what they've done here. Literally with a lunch pail every practice. So that's how that's how yeah, you do it. Virginia Thank Tech, you so yeah. much. Thank you so much, man. Of course, uh, you can check him out all over the athletic. We really appreciate it, Kyle. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was Kyle Tucker of the Athletic covering the Kentucky Wildcats, and yeah, he's been on the beat, um, God, about 10, 15 years or so. And just hearing him describe how dilapidated the stadium was and how bad the facilities were, how terrible the recruiting strategy was, like everything about Kentucky football was so bad. And I actually, I totally agree with his his sort of laying out of Mark Stoops' strategy, which is very similar to a, a lot of good, smart football people out there, which is have a plan, make sure your bosses are committed to, to helping support that plan with resources. Yep. So, so facilities and stadium and all that other stuff, coaching staff, whatever. But also his recruiting strategy was, look, I'm going to get the five stars from Kentucky. We're going to get the four stars from Ohio that, that Ohio State doesn't want. And then we're going to get the three stars from like Georgia and Alabama and Florida, where like we know Alabama and Georgia and Florida and LSU and A&M want all these guys. We can't beat them, but we can take like the third tier guy from, from Florida. We could take the, the second tier guy from Ohio and the number one tier guy from Kentucky and build a pretty damn good football team out of the deal. So. Yep. Uh, it, it's no secret that I, Kentucky is my Sam Pittman. <laughs> Mark Stoops is my Sam Pittman. There's no question. I, I'm not going to argue with you about Kentucky. You did like them. You were not the only one, as we have said many times on this show, but you were, you were one of them. I just think he was like part of the reason you love Sam Pittman and who he is and what he is and how he conveys himself and how he treats people like, I think that was Mark Stoops was kind of a hire that was ahead of the curve on just hiring a football guy that just like says, does what he says and says what he does. Like, your that, Sam Pittman was Eli Drinkwitz. That, that also cannot be proven. There's no evidence. <laughs> yeah, that, there that was is. a thing. I have the archives. Also, Eli, come on the show, buddy. <laughs> yeah, for real. We can nerd out on some Star Wars and talk about Cruton. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Um, all right. So special thanks to Gino Toretta. Special thanks to Kyle Tucker. Uh, obviously, uh, throw double birds any chance you can. You know, 
GBO and all that great stuff. Enjoy some super regional baseball. If you're not a Vanderbilt fan, enjoy some super regional baseball this weekend. Uh, otherwise, Aaron, where can people follow you? Um, the Aaron Dugan on Twitter and Aaron underscore Dugan on Instagram. And you can subscribe to this channel on YouTube. We're going to put some fun visuals in here this week from all the media guides. Ooh. Where can people follow oh, you, Braden? Oh, here's a tease, by the way, for an episode coming up next week that only you can see. You cannot hear it. You can only see it. Ooh. You can only see it. Ah. Look at that. Don't wow. say anything, Aaron. Don't give it I'm away. Not, I get it. I'm not. God, I hate when you mansplain. Aaron, shit. don't. You just said that. Aaron, it's only video. Don't tell anybody. Trust me. I understand video better than you do. <laughs> no argument. <laughs> no argument for me. At Braden Gall on Twitter. Special thanks to everybody hanging out with us. Uh, subscribe, notifications, follow, share, all that great stuff. We love you. Thanks for hanging out. For Aaron, my name is Braden. This has been Fringe Element. We'll talk to you again next week, everybody. I have no notes. <laughs>